Well, good to be worshiping with everyone today. My name is Scott Raines. I'm one of the pastors here. And that, of course, is a scene from Groundhog Day. Uh, Bill Murray plays weatherman, meteorologist, Phil Connors, stuck in Puxatani, repeating Groundhog Day over and over and over. I was actually reading people, people do these, they watch the movie over and over and over to try to figure out how many days did he actually repeat and some people say it's between 30 and 40 years that he was stuck there repeating that day, kind of like the Israelites in the wilderness wandering. Anyway, um, he, he figures out he's reliving every day, so he decides one day, I can just eat whatever I want, and it won't, won't really matter. And so, you know, that's a scene from the movie, but it's also, I think, a picture of what a lot of Christians look like the day before Lent begins. <laughs> Lent begins on Ash Wednesday, and the day before is... Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday, the day that Christians stuff their faces with everything they're not going to be able to eat for the next 40 days. Let's read this verse together as we get going from Psalm 63. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. I will praise you with songs of joy. You satisfy me more than anything. I want to dig into this idea of satisfaction today and kind of get us going, uh, we'll experiment a little bit. Let's all stand up, everybody stand up, and I'm going to ask you to talk with someone close to you for uh, a little bit, someone close to you in terms of proxemics. Here's the question that I want you to talk about. What do you enjoy today that your parents and grandparents never had? Maybe a technological innovation, I don't know what it might be. What do you enjoy today that your parents and grandparents never had? Introduce yourself to someone close by you, talk about this for about a minute. Ready, go. All right, wrap it up. Thank you for participating, introverts. You can all be seated. I don't know what sort of pops into your head. I always remember the first time I saw somebody use a GPS and it just blew me away. How in the world is it possible for this screen to know exactly where I am in the world? All sorts of things, maybe technological innovations, garage door openers, Netflix, who knows, uh, ways that we get to enjoy life in a different way than previous generations, and a lot of it is good. It was uh, in the 1960s, expert testimony was given on the floor of the United States Senate, and the experts predicted, uh, given all this time-saving technology, labor-saving technology, they said people, in the 1960s, they said people who are fortunate enough to live in the future, like in the 1990s or the early 2000s, they're probably only going to work 30-hour weeks or maybe only 30 weeks out of the year, all of this labor and time-saving technology. Uh, uh, well, anyway, um, there's a guy named David Myers. He's a social psychologist at Holland, Michigan, uh, Hope College there. And he's written several books. One is called The American Paradox. And he looks at kind of the last 40 or 50 years of the, the last century and uh, realizes that there's a lot of ways that life is better for us but that's not the whole story. And so part of what he tells in the American Paradox is the other side of the story. Here's some of the other things that happened over the last 40 or 50 years. The divorce rate doubled in America. Teen suicide rate tripled. Violent crime rate quadrupled. Prison population quintupled. Babies born to unmarried parents, going, to going off Pastor Mike's sermon last weekend, sextupled, pardon the pun, cohabitation, Sevenfold increase. Depression has increased more than tenfold in the last 40 to 50 
years. And you look at these statistics and it's really kind of amazing, uh, maybe a little bit alarming. Uh, so life has gotten better in, in a lot of ways and not so much better in other ways. Researchers ask Americans over and over, what is it that would mean that you are living the good life and the number one answer is more money? What's preventing you from living the good life, uh, kind of pursuing the American dream? And the answer is not enough money. So then they ask them, well, how much money do you need? And in 1987, this was University of Michigan, how much money is needed to reach your dreams? In 87, people said, probably $50,000. If I could make $50,000, sweetness, be living the dream, I'd, be, I'd feel like I was rich. Eight years later, they asked them, and it bumps up to $90,000. So then they took a look at what was actual dollars that we were making in America. Uh, over the course of this 40-year period, the late 50s to the late 1990s. And here's what they discovered. In 1957, average income in America was $9,000. When you adjust for inflation, adjusting for inflation, uh, 40 years later, 1998, it had risen to $20,000. So it had more than doubled, over 100% increase in 40 years. And everybody says more money is going to equal more happiness, Right? Not so fast, my friends. So they measure this as well. Uh, starting in 1957, when people would answer these surveys, are you very happy? 35% said, yes, I'm very happy. It dropped to 30% over the course of the next 40 years. As income is doubling, happiness is going down. And so we've got this idea that if we just had more time, if we just had more money, that would equal a better life. But statistics don't seem to bear it out. Instead of, instead of making us more satisfied, we're feeling a lot more dissatisfied all the time. And it's not just like a 20th, 21st century problem for Americans. The prophet Isaiah, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, prophet Isaiah asks this, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Remember the first time I saw Groundhog Day in the theater, I was unimpressed, kind of felt like it dragged a little in the middle. I mean, let's get on with it. The more I watch this movie, though, I, I think it is deeply and profoundly spiritual, which tells you probably a little bit about the depths of my spirituality. But every time I watch it, I, I, there's something a little new that kind of jumps out at me. So Phil Connors is dissatisfied. He doesn't want to be stuck in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, doing the weather reports, having to go out on these, you know, places like Punxsutawney and, and do reports from there. He thinks he has enough talent, he should be on a national network. And so he's dissatisfied with that. He's dissatisfied relationally, and there's this new producer, Andy McDowell plays Rita, the new producer, and so Phil starts to think, you know, maybe what would satisfy me would be if I could get Rita to date me. He, he Initially, as he's thinking about, I'm living this day over and over and over again, he starts to use it in ways that he thinks will bring more satisfaction to himself. He figures out when the armored truck is being unloaded and he robs the armored truck. It's all about self-satisfaction. And then Rita becomes one of his projects. And so our theme this year at Hope is to know and to be known. To know and to be known, getting to know God, getting to know one another better. I want you to watch this scene as Phil tries to get to know Rita. Take a look. Oh, I told you it was deeply spiritual and profound. 
the scene actually continues, and they, that day they keep reliving that, that first date kind of thing. They end up in a gazebo dancing while snow is falling all around, and it's oh so very romantic. And then the music begins to swell in the background, but the song is just so perfect. The song is Ray Charles singing You Don't Know Me. Anyone can tell you think you know me well, but you don't know me. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread? Your labor for that which does not satisfy. Why do we keep getting more and more stuff, more and more money, and find ourselves less and less happy all the time? Could it possibly be because we think we know God, but we really don't know God? And so over the course of this season of Lent, we're going to be trying to get to know God better through the person of God's Son, Jesus Christ. The, the sermon series is I Am. It's based on some statements that Jesus makes in the, in the Gospels. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. It's what we'll be talking about today. It comes from the Old Testament where God says to Moses, my name is I Am. My name is Yahweh. And then Jesus starts using that in the New Testament. So a couple of um, ideas I want you, pictures, scenes from Jesus' life, I want you to keep uh, in your head as we go through this message. The first one comes from early on in Jesus' ministry. In Matthew chapter 4, he's just been baptized in the Jordan River, and immediately the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness where he is tempted for 40 days and 40 nights, and he fasts over the course of those 40 days, similar to why people sometimes during Lent might give up something or might fast from a certain type of food. And the devil is there also. Jesus is completely alone, no disciples, no crowds, just Jesus in the wilderness, all alone, and the devil. And the devil's watching, and the devil's waiting for just the right time to tempt Jesus. If you're really the son of God, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus says, people do not live by bread alone. Bread's good, but bread does not ultimately satisfy. People don't live by bread alone. That's Matthew chapter 4. Turn the page to Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount begins. And by the time you get to Matthew chapter 6, still part of the Sermon on the Mount, remember the disciples are now there, great crowds have gathered around Jesus, he's teaching, they're, they're hearing about his works, they come to hear what he's going to say and what he's going to do, and part of what Jesus does is teaches them how to pray, teaches them the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And I'd never really noticed this before, but as I was digging into this idea, what does it mean when Jesus says he's the bread of life? It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Jesus is so adamant in Matthew 4, people don't live by bread alone, but just two chapters later when he's teaching us how to pray, he makes sure to include a regular daily prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Why? He talks about things like God's glory in the Lord's Prayer and God's reign and God's will in the Lord's Prayer. Why something as basic as give us this day our daily bread? God's trying to teach us something. Jesus is trying to teach us something. If you want a life that's filled with satisfaction, you've got to learn, you've got to train yourself to live a God-dependent life. A life that's truly satisfied is a life that is God-dependent. And so when we teach ourselves to pray on a regular basis, give us this day our daily bread, we're training ourselves to remember 
that we are dependent on God for everything. I don't know about you, but a lot of times in my life, I'm living more of a Scott-dependent life than a God-dependent life. Most of the time, I think I can take care of everything on my own, but every once in a while, there'll be some problems that pop up where I could use a little more help, a little assistance here, Lord. And that's typically when I would pray. And so it's fascinating. Jesus, Jesus is like, give us this day our daily bread. It, it's not teaching us to pray, give us this day a successful job interview. Give us this day a job offer. Give us this day a clean bill of health. Not just the big crisis moments in our lives, but the basic everyday moments. Give us this day our daily bread so we train ourselves to know and to live out this reality. We are dependent on God for everything. It's a very difficult thing for human beings to do, especially in our part of the world, but really everywhere. The, the first time that this idea of daily bread gets mentioned in the Bible, it's not when Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer. Go back to the story of the Exodus in the Old Testament, Moses leading the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. They're on their way to the freedom of the promised land, and the people begin to complain. The food's no good. Not enough to eat. We, we, it was not great being slaves in Egypt, but at least we had a nice smorgasbord, you know? And so God responds, and God sends them food. Starts raining down bread from heaven. It's called manna. And then God gives the people instructions how to use the manna. Each day, the people can go out and pick up as much food as they need for that day. Just daily bread. Just daily bread. Why? Well, it turns out it will spoil if they gather more than enough for that day. But God's trying to teach them something. God's trying to help them train themselves to be people who understand on a day-to-day -day basis my complete dependence on God. And at the same time, God's helping them understand God is dependable. Every night they go to bed, they don't have any food for the next day. Every morning they wake up and the ground is covered with food, manna, bread from heaven. God is provided. We live in a part of the world where this idea of daily bread is so foreign to us, most of us. We've got refrigerators stocked with food, shelves stocked with food, and when we run empty, we go to a store, entire buildings filled with food. Some of us have freezers filled with food, second refrigerators filled with food. This idea of daily bread, it's so, so strange. What are, what are we talking about here? And so God is trying to teach us over and over, we're dependent on him. We're dependent on him. For 40 years in the wilderness, the people relied on this daily bread in order to have life. And at the end of the 40 years, they're finally ready to enter into the promised land, and Moses gathers them together for a little bit of a pep talk. He's reminding them what God has been up to the last 40 years, and he's telling them part of, the, part of what this is all about is God wanted to humble you. God wanted to humble you, and he gave you manna for 40 years. He did all this so you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy. That's a huge temptation for us, to say everything that's good in my life is because of me. A real helpful um, project, I think, for us to do every once in a while is just reflect back over our life. I think about my own life. How did I end up at Hope? How did I end up you know, married to Wendy? How'd she say yes? I tricked her. Uh, how did we get Saffron? How did we adopt our daughter Saffron? And you start looking back and you start to see all the different things that happened that are completely out of my hand, out of my control. 
We say it every time we gather for worship. It's no accident you are here, and we mean it, but not just that you're here for worship. It's no accident you are where you are in your life. When's the last time you thought back the relationships in your life and the different moves that you've made in your life? And when you take time to do that, you start to see God at work. You start to see God things. You start to see, yeah, I did some things, and there, there, I played a role in it, but ultimately it was God who was at work guiding me and helping me get to where I am. When we start to pay attention to how dependent we are on God for our daily bread, it should fill us with gratitude. A satisfied life is a God-centered life, and a satisfied life is a grateful life. Uh, Thursday, I got to go to a retirement ceremony for Randy Bolver. Uh, Randy and his wife Janelle have been coming to Hope for quite a while now. Randy serves on the public safety team, and he is overqualified to serve on that team. For the last 32 years, he's been a trooper for the Iowa State Patrol and had his retirement this last Thursday, and I got to go. Lots of people were there, including several Hopesters, and um, colleagues would stand up to share. You know, here's the kind of colleague and worker and man that Randy was. And they talked about his passion, his dedication, his professionalism. And it was really cool to see and, and to listen and to watch that all unfold. And you could see that sense of pride, uh, but you could also see what was, I wasn't really expecting to see. There was a lot of humility and there was a lot of gratitude. Kind of written all over Randy's face was just gratitude for the people who were there, family, friends, colleagues. Gratitude that he was able to work for 32 years at a job he loved and was passionate about. And part of what I started to think was maybe it would be a really good thing for us to think about what, what's our retirement day going to be like? I mean, for someone as young as me, it's so far off, we hardly ever think about retirement. But maybe what would it look like to live our lives starting right now in such a way that when we get to our retirement day, it's going to be a day of deep satisfaction and gratitude. Not regret, not what ifs, not relief. I don't have to go back to that job anymore. But deep satisfaction. In Matthew 6, when Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, we still have kind of ringing in our ears his words from Matthew 4 in the temptation in the wilderness. People do not live by bread alone. In other words, good food is great and good relationships, and good jobs, as good as those things are, they will only satisfy us temporarily. They're not enough to satisfy the human soul. So when we have all of these good, good things, life is filled with so many good things, a big part of what they do is they create within us a hunger for that which will really satisfy and that's what Jesus is getting at in John chapter 6. It was our Bible reading for the day. It begins with the story, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Great crowd is gathered around, and Jesus feeds everybody with just a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish. And the crowd is understandably amazed by this. In fact, what John writes is they're trying to figure out, how can we make Jesus our king right now? And he slips away because he understands the kind of king they're going to want him to be is not the kind of king he came to be. And they go looking for Jesus, they find him the next day, and he's, he's kind of harsh with them. He says, the only reason you're here is because I, I gave you food. You don't really care about the kind of life that I'm... 
And then they, they start having, he talks about Moses, he talks about, remember Moses, this great man of faith? Moses is not the one who fed the people in the wilderness. My father in heaven fed them. He sent down bread from heaven, manna, to feed them. And as awesome, as amazing as manna is, it's not the true bread that gives life. And the people are like, well, what is the true bread? Give this to us so that we can eat it, so we can live. And Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. This is confusing. Jesus says, he's the true bread. He's the one that comes from heaven to earth. And they're like, no, you're not. You're the carpenter's kid from Nazareth. And then he ratchets up the offensiveness a little bit more. I tell you the truth. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And, and they're just like, what is this guy talking about? And they're discussing it and debating what could Jesus possibly mean. John says, a lot of people were so offended, they turn away and they stop following Jesus. Don't want to have anything to do with this. So Jesus turns to his closest disciples. He turns to the 12 and he says, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, where would we go? Who else would we follow? Peter says, Jesus, you alone have the words of eternal life. You alone have the words of eternal life. Now, I was reading through this, and I got to tell you, I was a little confused myself as I was reading through this. Because on the one hand, on the one hand, Peter says, Jesus has the words of eternal life. That reminded me of what Jesus says back in the temptation in Matthew 4. Eat, turn, turn these stones into bread, Jesus, the devil says. And Jesus says, people do not live by bread alone. But that's not all he says. Remember the whole thing? Let's, let's read this out loud together. People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Where do we go, Jesus? You're the one that has the word of eternal life. People live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We got, that on, we got the word on one hand, but on the other hand, remember what Jesus says? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And so it's like, where does life come from? Does it come from the flesh and the blood, or does it come from the word? Which one is it? And the reason it's confusing to me and maybe confusing to you is because we are culturally illiterate. We're not part of the culture that Jesus is a part of. And so to us, it seems like it's two different things, but when Jesus said it, it's the same thing. The word and the flesh and blood is the same thing. Let me see if I can explain this. So in Jesus' day, scholars tell us, best estimates, in Jesus' day, 1.5% of the population was literate. So in most villages, only one person, maybe two if you were lucky, would be able to read, would be able to read the Word of God. Fast forward 1,500 years to Martin Luther in Germany and the Reformation, and he's, he's taken the Bible from Latin and translating it into the language of the people into German. Only 7% of the population could read at that time. You've got a very illiterate world, a very illiterate culture. How do you get them the Word of God when they can't read it for themselves? And so partially what you have to do is be a little bit creative about this. And, and really what it means for us is we have a narrow understanding of the word. And so there's no difference between the sacrament and the written word of God. The word and the sacrament, it's the same thing. Paul tells us this, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, every time you eat this bread and drink from this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. 
And the word for announcing in Greek, it's most often translated preaching. When you come forward for communion, when you eat the bread and drink the cup, you become the preacher. You become the one who proclaims the word of God. No difference, no difference between the sacrament and the word. I was actually reading a, a book, and it's written by a woman who became a Christian when she took communion. Been an atheist her whole life, kind of scorned Christianity, scorned faith, but one day wanders into church, and it was communion Sunday. And when it was time for the bread and the cup, she came forward, and she had a conversion experience as she ate the bread and drank from the cup. Changed everything for her, she said. She started following after Jesus, living a whole new way of life. Now, if you're like me, that's a little confusing because it makes sense if someone says, I stumbled into church one day and there was a preacher in an Argyle sweater vest preaching the word of God and it changed everything for me. That makes sense. But to come and eat the bread and drink from the cup and that changes everything? It would not have been surprising to Jesus or to Paul or to Martin Luther or the Reformers that conversion would happen that way. There are some churches, though, maybe some of you have been parts of churches like this, where they say you cannot come forward for communion unless you are first a Christian. And in fact, in our church, I, can't, I think we kind of do a disservice, at least a branding disservice, when we announce, hey, there's a first communion class coming up. Because part of what I think we hear when we say it's a first communion class is you cannot have communion until you take the class first. And I just want you to understand that's bad theology. I don't, you can do that if you want. Uh, parents, you can do whatever you want. But theologically, this has always been a little confusing to me. I didn't grow up in, in Lutheran world, so it was always a little strange to me. We love baptizing babies. And, and nobody says they have to go to a class first. I mean, they, they go, but it's really for their parents. And it's not like the little baby has to sign off, I agree with all the doctrinal statements of, no. But when it's communion, we say we practice open communion. Everyone is welcome at the Lord's table, unless you're a little kid. Then you've got to take the class first. So I just want you to know, most of that's just tradition. It's not scriptural. We practice open communion here for people of all ages. Because we believe what everyone needs, what everyone needs is Jesus. And that there's something powerful that happens when the word of God is proclaimed through a sermon like this. There's also something powerful that happens when the word of God is proclaimed in the bread and in the cup. So, I, if you have uh, questions about that, email Pastor Josh at Hope Bank. He'd be happy to answer all your questions. I do want you to know, well, there's freedom. You, we, we don't want to mess with your hearts or your conscience or whatever, but we, just, we also want to teach you what it is that we really believe and what, what are we teaching our kids if we tell them, eh, they're, they're learning something from that. One more clip from this movie, Groundhog Day. Uh, Phil continues to try to get to know Rita, and at, at this point, he's asking her, you know, what is she looking for out of life, but also out of relationships? What are you looking for? Take a look. So what are you looking for? Uh, maybe you stumbled into worship today because of some dissatisfaction in your life, and you're looking for something to 
fill it up, something to satisfy, someone to satisfy, to give you hope, to give you joy, to give you life. Hear Jesus saying to you, me, me, me.